So there's a question that's been driving a wedge within the church and between the church and the communities we live amongst. It could be a question which ultimately drove a wedge between you and somebody you loved or a community you were a part of. And it sounds something like this. So what are your views on being gay? So today we're going to talk about how we as a church, no matter how we have approached this question in the past, can overcome the wedge and become a place where anybody and everybody can discover the abundant life that is made available through Jesus. No exceptions. And I hope whoever you are, if you're looking at life with Jesus and wondering what it's about, then this will help you move forward in that discovery too. Now, God has chosen to use the church, that is the gathered people of Christ, as stewards of his work in the world. And his work is to invite into relationship with him those who do not yet know him. That's what's at stake here. So where did we go wrong that it has become inconceivable for some that people in the LGBTQ community are being invited into relationship with God? I think maybe we've framed the question all wrong. And I learned that the hard way, actually. Let me tell you about a time I approached this subject completely incorrectly. One of my chosen subjects in sixth form was religious studies or philosophy and ethics, we called it. And about halfway through the first year, we did a module on sexual ethics. Now, inevitably, one week, the topic up for discussion was homosexuality and specifically Christian tradition and contemporary debates in the church about LGBTQ issues. The lesson got heated. We didn't all see the conversation the same way or we didn't even start from the same place even. So lots of people got angry. I got really worked up and I ended up expressing how I saw things as a Christian on the defensive. Then the bell went and the tension dispersed a little, but not completely. We filtered out of the classroom, probably, I guess, a little shell-shocked by the intensity of the conversation. And I can vividly remember getting to the bottom of the stairwell and hearing some girls at the top of the stairs muttering quietly. And then I heard a girl from the class I had just been in, and she was sobbing. And shame dropped into my stomach. For her, that discussion had been personal. And I realised something as I reflect on that. For that girl, the issue up for debate was not the biggest question at stake. The issue up for debate was not the biggest question at stake. Because for somebody who's gay or has questions about their sexual orientation, their biggest question generally isn't, well, what does God think or what do you think about my sexual orientation? Even if that's the question somebody might ask and vocalise, we should consider the fact that there might be a more profound question underneath that one. Questions like, well, would you like me if you knew everything about me? Or do you believe God loves me? Would he accept me? Is there room for me with you? Do I need to hide myself from you or from God? Am I going to hell? I mean, maybe this is where we've gone wrong as a church, that we haven't considered that the issue up for debate is often not the biggest question at stake. I mean, if you're a Christian, consider for a moment if a straight married person outside of the church asked you any of those questions, what would you say? 
Do your answers change at all if you know that person is gay? They shouldn't. They shouldn't. Because in fact, these are not fundamentally questions about sexuality. They are questions about humanity, about God, and about the nature of grace. For some reason, sexual orientation seems to have gotten way too much to do with how we answer those questions. So if you're gay, the chances are you think your orientation is going to have a whole lot to do with how Christians might respond to those questions when it comes to you. And you probably do have good reasons for thinking that. But everybody makes an error when they make sexual orientation the epicenter, the crux of a conversation about what it means to be loved, accepted, saved and given new life by God. That is not what was at the epicenter of the conversation for the earliest followers of Jesus. It is not what is at the epicenter of the Bible. At the epicenter of the Bible is a person and a scandal that should reorientate everybody who hears it. And it's not a sexual reorientation. It's an everything reorientation, mind, body and soul. The epicenter of this conversation, in fact of all our conversations, has to be the epicenter of our faith. So many people, and you may be included in this, will look on on this conversation with total confusion because they can't even fathom why Christians have any question about sexual orientation and same-sex relationships at all. It's like, get over it, it's the 21st century people, live and let live. You know, in the UK, as you know, and much of the Western world, it's really not uncommon for people to associate the word Christian with the word homophobe, right? And they're not always wrong, are they? <laughs> but there's something about culture's approach to this conversation, which still means we're not getting on the same page. We're not starting on the same page with the same worldview, the same glasses. It's possible that it's missing from your framework as well. And that's that at the center of our faith, are some core beliefs about humanity, God, and the nature of grace that matter for this conversation. Now, let me wrap them up quickly now, but they're worth exploring in more detail. Firstly, that humans are created by God to reflect his image, which means he's in charge. But don't worry, that's actually good news because he's good. And secondly, that we are saved by Jesus. He gave up his rights, privileges, divine authority in obedience to God and put right what we got wrong as we failed to properly reflect God's image because he loved us and because he wanted to restore the relationship between God and humanity. Every person is part of this narrative, created by God, created for a purpose, inclined to reject God and his way, loved by Jesus, the reason for Jesus's suffering and the motivation for his rescue. I am the reason for Jesus' suffering and the motivation for his rescue. And as the Jesus movement began after his death and resurrection, anybody who began following Jesus started to orient their entire life around Jesus, their crucified and resurrected saviour. Here's what that meant. Firstly, everybody accepted a cost. It cost something to follow Jesus back then. But Jesus had paid this monumental cost on their behalf. So a costly life, well, it made sense to them. Everybody underwent a redefinition of who they were 
and of who they belonged to. And everybody found abundant life that gave them a hope for the present, even in suffering, a joy about the future and a mission that made them give up their own safety, security and comfort to share God's amazing love and the message of Jesus with the world. And the epicenter, the crux of their faith was the cross. Yeah, actually, crux literally means cross. The cross was the symbol of sacrifice, of humiliation and humility, of dying to yourself that you might live for God and for others. The cross was also a reminder that getting your own way wasn't a Jesus follower's right. A Jesus follower, a Christian, patterned themselves after this and said, I'm no longer in charge of my own life. I have nailed my old self to the cross and it is gone. I am a new creation in Christ. Christ's life is in me and he is the most important thing about me. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're thinking, what? <laughs> I mean, it sounds weak, it sounds self-deprecating, it sounds extreme. Should people really think so little of themselves? The earliest Christians knew this was crazy talk. I mean, Paul, who we've come across already in this series, says, look, I know, it's foolishness to the Gentiles, he says, that's non-Jews, like the Romans, to follow a God who got nailed to a cross. It's a stumbling block to the Jews who believed God was unseen and untouchable, so far above, so almighty, you couldn't even speak his name. Properly taught and applied, the gospel, the message about Jesus, should be equally offensive to everybody because the gospel, it comes up against our ideas about freedom and empowerment, the desire to be self-governed. It comes against the belief that I know best. It comes against the need to be strong or to be self-sufficient or to be right in the eyes of the world. That is always going to offend people. If that seems strange or wrong in the eyes of the world, do you know that's okay? But if it seems strange or wrong because we now apply this inconsistently, then we've got a problem. You know, the world doesn't like inconsistent religious people and uh, Jesus wasn't too keen on them either. The truth is that the church has been demanding gay people surrender something costly when we're all falling short of living a life that's fully surrendered to God. You know, I, I do wonder sometimes, what would it take so that the first thing somebody who hears the word Christian doesn't think homophobe, they think Jesus. That's what it was originally supposed to mean. Man, these people are obsessed with Jesus. You know, I, I'm okay with being known for him. I'm okay for being considered odd for him, crazy for him. I'm not okay with being known for not loving a certain group of people. Because that, I mean, that diminishes the power of the cross which should put all of us flat on our faces. No one deserves it, nobody earned it, but God in his great love and mercy was greater than our greatest sin. Jackie Hill Perry, who's an exceptional communicator and author of the book, Gay Girl, Good God, says that when she turned to God, she didn't find that God was trying to reorient her away from her attraction towards women. It was something much more fundamental than that. He was reorienting her away from herself and towards her creator and her savior. She says in an interview that the words she heard from God were, I am the goal of your repentance and your salvation. 
that the goal of her coming to Jesus was not primarily that she leave behind her sexual attraction, but that she leave behind a self-ruled life that kept her from God and find a relationship with him that changed everything. Jesus on the cross is at the epicenter of our faith. We are not, our sexuality is not, they're part of the picture, sure, they're not irrelevant, but they are not the epicenter. And so the question becomes, well, how does a person orientate their lives around that center? I love what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, as in with God's mercy in your sights, as a result of that reality, to offer, he says, no one else can do it for you, to offer your bodies, that is everything you are, not merely your beliefs, not merely your Sundays, offer your bodies, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice, he says. Like, give up your right to rule yourself and decide what you do with your life and your body. By the way, when he says living sacrifice, you can be sure that he has the cross of Christ in his mind as he says this. As a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing to God, he says, this is your true and proper worship. This is what God desires. Give God your all, he says. He deserves it and he cherishes it. A life devoted to God is holy and pleasing to God. Then Paul urges followers of Jesus, do not conform to the pattern of this world. What does he mean? Well, this world is designed to encourage you to put yourself in the middle of it. But Paul says, don't follow that pattern. So then Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? Changing your behavior? No, he says, the renewing of your mind. That is aligning your will, having your thoughts directed towards God and the things of God. And then Paul says, then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect, that means complete will. Paul doesn't mean that God's will for each person will be revealed only to them or that it's subjective, but that only by a person having their mind renewed by God can they come to a true understanding of God's will as revealed in the scriptures and through the life and teachings of Jesus, such that they are able to properly live it out, meaningfully live it out. So do you see the transformational process that Paul describes here? Firstly, that somebody recognises the mercy and the love of God, first and foremost. Secondly, that somebody offers themselves to him. Thirdly, that they reject the world's way of being led. Fourthly, that they begin to be transformed by God as he renews their mind. Fifthly, that they begin to come to a strong understanding of God's will. It's no good somebody doing what God wants just because they've been told that's fine for kids. It doesn't work for adults. They need to come to that understanding. A few things I want to particularly draw your attention to about this process that Paul's describing here. Firstly, it preferences nobody, straight or gay. Nobody gets a head start. Nobody is more or less qualified to begin this process. Secondly, it cannot be forced upon somebody. And thirdly, nobody has fully achieved it. Think about it, nobody has. I think this actually holds the key to how we as a church can get better at being a place where anybody can enter the transformational process that Paul is describing. 
because it puts us all onto the same page, right? In fact, let me actually also just share with you what Paul says in another letter to the Philippians, uh, which makes this point further, and I love what he says. You should know before I read it that Paul was trained in a strict school of Judaism as a Pharisee, and then he went on to hunt and kill Jesus' people because he considered it an offence to Jewish teaching initially. But then he was called by God and received God's grace to turn around and become a messenger of the gospel to non-Jewish people. Now, here's what he says in Philippians, and I'd encourage you to consider what do you resonate with about what he says and what do you not resonate with at all and ask yourself why. So here's what Paul says. He says, whatever were gains to me, that is before, before I knew Jesus, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, that is the, the way better worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage <laughs> that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, a goodness that comes from me, that comes from my obedience to the law, he says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, that is on the basis of my trust in him. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining, achieving the resurrection from the dead. And then pay attention here. Not that I have already obtained all this, he says, or I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you share a common goal with somebody, a common direction, you will find a unity with them and a relationship with them that can overcome other differences. At the moment, I'm watching this drama called Chicago Fire about a firehouse in the city. It's amazing, by the way. And uh, that show has actually got me pretty fired up, pun intended, about how it is that the church can look. Because when the firefighters in the show run into a fire together to make a save, no matter their differences, no matter what arguments they've had, no matter who has the most experience or the least experience, no matter what obstacles they face when they get into the building, they come out again as brothers and sisters. A shared goal, a common direction, especially when you see people opt for it, even when it means the going gets tough, even when it requires sacrifice or moving beyond your comfort zone, well, that will bond you pretty tightly together. I wonder what if the church could be more like that? What if we could run headlong into the direction of an all-in, living sacrifice kind of faith in God? Wouldn't it better unite us? Wouldn't it make people pay attention? Wouldn't it make a few saves along the way? And your part in that? Are you? <laughs> well, it's an invitation, really, to pursue handing over every part of your life to Christ letting God teach you more and more of how he wants you to live, reveal more and more of his grace in your life. And someday, you might model the kind of all-in, 
whole life surrendered faith that inspires somebody else to seek after the God who is transforming you. <laughs> I want that. And when they come looking, what do we say? Well, hey, <laughs> welcome. What an amazing journey and an amazing God you are about to discover. Check out part of Karen's story. 20 something years later, I was living in the South and I came to Holy Baptist Church to, to be the sign language interpreter. So I do British Sign Language and to do the, the signing. Um, and, and that's where I started to refine my faith. I, I did the Alpha course here at Holy Baptist Church and, uh, and that was a real great opportunity for me to ask some, some of the questions that, um, that I've had for a long time but hadn't really asked. Um, and I didn't actually come out at the Alpha course until the very last class. So I, I'd asked lots of questions but, but didn't actually come out until, until that kind of last, last session. Um, and it was really interesting because at the end of that series, uh, one of the gentlemen who was supporting on that, on that course came to me and said, I didn't know you were gay and I don't understand it, but just you remember God rejects no one. And that was really important to me. That was a real eye-opening moment um, when I really started to think, you know, God is there for me, the same as he is for everybody else. And then standing at the front and doing the sign-in, um, again, light bulb moment where I started to realise I don't have to be like every one of you sitting in here. I don't have to be the same as the person in front of me, behind me, sitting next to me. I need to be more like God. And that really is, is what I want from a church. That's what church needs to be for me. I want to be able to come to church on a Sunday morning exactly as I am. Just come as exactly as I am, not have to leave anything at the door. Um, and be with a community of people who will support me and encourage me to really grow my faith, um, to, to grow in my relationship with God um, so that I can learn how to become more like Him. Um, that's what's really important for me. I just want us all to be able to support and encourage each other and, and God will do that. God will do His work um, with each of us and in, in, in all of our lives. Um, yeah, that's, that's church for me, that's what, I, what I'm looking for. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to engage with this message. We would love to hear from you if there's anything that you want to say in response. You can drop a comment below or you can email gotquestions at paulybaptist.org.uk. Um, and I really hope that you enjoyed listening to part of Karen's story. You can hear her full story, which is being uploaded onto YouTube as this message comes out. Uh, there are loads of other materials that we've created to go along with this series that you can engage with, other people's stories, some resources that we'd love for you to check out and we'll link in the description with this video some other places that you might like to look to continue this conversation. But I've got a few next steps for you as we close. Number one, watch Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus will teach you what a life surrendered to God looks like because he's the only one who's been able to do that completely and perfectly. And if you haven't spent much of your life watching Jesus or you've never given him a look, I cannot recommend it more. Secondly, watch your mouth. <laughs> don't do as I did. Uh, you know, don't forget that there may be a bigger, bigger issue at stake for somebody than the question that's up for debate. It's absolutely fine when topics like this come up to say, I don't know, or I don't know how to answer that well, or can we talk about it another time, or can I go away and think about it? That's absolutely fine, and it's better than saying something that causes hurt or regret. And number three, pray, pray, pray for unity. Pray that you would be united with people who see this perhaps differently from you. Pray that we as a church would become more united together. And be, bear in mind as you do that when Jesus prayed for unity, when he prayed for unity amongst his followers, he then got up from the table and walked off to the cross. So sometimes a prayer for unity can require a lot of us. Sometimes God might answer that prayer by asking us to do something that comes at a cost or feels uncomfortable or feels difficult, but pray for unity with all that you've got. Thanks so much for watching and we'll see you in the next video.